taking any more of Al's time, I give you Al M. of Boston. Well, that dick is a tough act to follow with those stories. I don't know. I, I, I bring him back to Boston. I'll tell him at the next Boston meeting. But good evening, everybody, and uh, don't let these papers bother you. These aren't idiot cards exactly, but these are some notes I put down because I didn't want to forget various things. And I do this quite often. I, I put the, make these notes out and I put them in front of me so I won't forget anything. And then I forget to look at them because I can't see them without my glasses and, and uh, I just go right on. But uh, I want to thank the Georgia State Convention for inviting me down here. Uh, I've I had a wonderful weekend. Uh, I didn't find the rich widow that I hoped to find down here, but I got about every other entertainment uh, there was. Uh, I, I, I had some... Uh, after that story that uh, Bob told yesterday about the grits, I had some grits this morning, and uh, they were nice. They must have been freshly picked, and, and uh, I, I enjoyed them. Uh, so I can go back and say I had the grits. Now, if you want to turn your watches back an hour, I can speak for two hours, and uh, we'll be all right. I hope, uh, I hope you don't need an interpreter for me, uh, I've had a little difficulty here because uh, understanding some of your Georgia peaches, your purebred Georgia peaches, uh, but I, I have one advantage. The guy who works for me, uh, his name is Ray Doherty, and his wife comes from Georgia. Her name is Mary Will, and Mary Will talks to me on the phone every now and then. So I, I got to understand the language pretty good so that I really didn't need a hearing aid down there. I used to have to lean over a couple of times to make sure what they were saying. Uh, my voice may bother you, but uh, you'll have to put up with it. Colonel Cushion uses it, and he gets along pretty good. And, and uh, I'm a newspaper man, and the other morning I was testing my radio cards. And uh, the, the guy in the, in the transmitter finally said, he said, uh, well, you're coming in good, but your voice is raspy. I said, that's my natural voice, so leave me alone. But I'm, uh, my name is Al Monahan. I come from Everett, Massachusetts group. That's a suburb of Boston. And I'm an alcoholic. I, uh, there was a time, as a matter of fact, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, when I didn't believe I was an alcoholic. As a matter of fact, I was sure I wasn't an alcoholic. I figured an alcoholic was a derelict, and a derelict was an alcoholic, and that's all there was to it. And I knew a lot of derelicts, and I didn't think I was a derelict. But there were a lot of other people that had different notions. There was a guy that had watched my drinking career with great interest. He had gone to school with me, and he had watched my various performances. And he had a wife who had a drinking problem. And the wife thought that it was a terrible thing, that she had to do something about it. She thought she was an alcoholic, but he didn't. He thought that alcoholism was a moral issue, uh, there was a matter of willpower, and he kept telling her, you can take care of this thing if you wanted to. And finally she told him she thought she'd like to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, he didn't like the idea. He thought that Alcoholics Anonymous was the dregs of society. We were a lot of skid row bums. He thought his wife was in enough trouble without associating with a crowd like that. So he told her nothing doing. But things went from bad to worse. Finally, she prevailed upon him one night. He said, well, all right, I'll drive you to the meeting. But he said, I'm not going in, and I'm going home, and you come home on your own par, and I want you home on time. So she went to the meeting. Then I was there. Of course, she was delighted to see me. She had known me for some time, and we chatted. We had a good time, and uh, she... Out of that meeting, she'd got quite a lift. And uh, we got her home, and she went in, and her husband was reading the evening paper, and uh, she was in cloud nine. She, at that meeting, she had decided that this was her answer. And she went into him, and she said, uh, 
What do you think? Who do you think is in Alcoholics Anonymous? And he said, who? She said, Al Monaghan. He said he ought to be. And he resumed reading the paper. So you see, that was his opinion of, of my drinking. Well, I, I drank for about... Well, I had, I had two good reasons to drink. Number one, I'm an Irishman. I also found out a lot of Irish in Georgia, which uh, strengthens me. And I felt that an Irishman had a God-given right to drink. And number two, I was a newspaper man. And I figured you had to drink to maintain the, uh, the image and the prestige of the business. Now, I knew I drank more than other people. But I figured that wasn't anybody's business but my own. And that uh, much of this hollering that was going on uh, was unnecessary. I drank for a period of 20 years. I think I was a social drinker, well, maybe for five years. I think I had five years when I drank when and if I wanted to. And then I became an alcoholic. Then I passed this tolerance point. AA speaks about it. Then I moved from drinking when I wanted to uh, to a compulsive drinker when I had to. But I didn't know what an alcoholic was, and I didn't know what a tolerance point was, and I didn't know what a compulsive drinker was. As a matter of fact, I cared less at that particular time. So I had 15 years of alcoholic drinking. I had five years in which I had quite a bit of trouble. But this didn't shake me either. I felt that if you, uh, if you danced, you had to pay the piper. So if you had a little trouble, it wasn't too much. So then I had five more years of alcoholic drinking and sort of a gray out stage. And I got in all kinds of trouble. And here again, it didn't bother me particularly, because I was the type of drinker that wanted action. And God knows I got it. I got it on all sides. But as I got into this trouble, I figured, well, if you drink and everything is normal, nothing happens, it's kind of a waste of time, money, and booze. So I didn't bother. So then I had five years of sort of blackout alcoholic drinking. I worked and I drank and I got in all kinds of trouble and I really didn't didn't pay any attention. I, I, I didn't know what was going on. Well, you probably say, well, how are you working all that time? Well, I had very considerate bosses and, uh, and sometimes I guess I wrote by instinct. I went to work on the paper when I was 14 years old. I went to work as an office boy, and I worked my way up in the ranks. And I went to work on the night stamp of the paper very young. And the guys were a lot older than I was. And they were, some of them were graduates of Harvard, and some of them were graduates of Boston College. And I looked at them with considerable awe because they were in a profession I loved. But they drank. I, I, as I say, I can't say they were alcoholics because that's forbidden, but they were enthusiastic drunks. <laughs> there were 14 of them and 13 drank. There was one guy, he was an old Shakespearean actor, and he was kind of too mean to drink, and he was the only one that didn't drink. And even then, I didn't like him. He used to goggle his throat every night before he went home. So one night, I jumped out the goggle, and I filled it with straight alcohol. And that night when he goggled, you could hear him all over newspaper rolls. So you see, and even then, I didn't like people that didn't drink. Well, I should have known something was wrong. I wasn't exactly the village idiot. I worked my way through college, and I worked my way through law school. And I went ahead in the newspaper business. I covered every major criminal case in the East. But stories began to drift back to my paper about things I said and things I did. And they thought that I carried a reputation with me. And they didn't like what they heard. And they put me in the office to keep an eye on me. Now, by this time, I'm a full-fledged alcoholic, and they don't know it, and I don't know it, and, of course, the balloon really went up. I'll get them made for effort. They... Tried to watch me, but you can't keep track of an active alcoholic. So the result was that everything was in turmoil. Then they decided that maybe if they gave me minor positions of authority, promoted me, that I'd straighten out and fly right. 
But each time they promoted me, I tipped over the apple cart. Finally, the night manager, he couldn't stand it any longer. He said, look, he said, I don't care what this guy is doing himself, but he's ruining the morale of the entire night side. So they moved me on the day side and started destroying the morale over there. So they say, all these things are happening, and I'm not paying much attention. Now and then I try to do something about my drinking, I suppose. Not that I really thought it was too serious, but I'd try and, and ease it. Uh, I tried the, the systems of shifting where you drank and shifting what you drank. I, I tried everything but one system a guy told me about. These two guys used to drink in this bar every night, and uh, they had a lot of trouble with the booze, and on the way home, they were always getting cut up, or somebody stepping on their fingers, or something like that, and they got worried about it. They noticed that there was another guy who was drinking the same bar every night, and he'd show up the next day, unmarked and clear-eyed, and uh, they wondered about it. So they said to the bartender, what's the story on that guy? We're always getting into trouble, and he doesn't, you know, he seems to show up here the next day, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and the bartender said, I don't know, why don't you ask him? So they said, uh, I saw the guy, they said, you mind if we ask you a question? He said, no. They said, well, look, uh, you drink here every night, we drink here every night, and uh, Jesus, we were always getting into trouble, getting cut up, or getting grabbed by the cops, or getting in accidents, something like that. And you're here every night, you don't seem to have any trouble. Well, the guy says, to tell you the truth, he said, I got a little system. He said, you see that girl down there, and there was a girl drank there every night, too. She was drinking a booth. And they looked down, and they, they remembered her. She was the real drinking type. I mean, she had scraggly hair and mascara down over her face. She was a mess. They said, well, what's she got to do with it? Well, the guy says, I'll tell you. He says, I take a drink. He says, then I take another drink. And he said, the minute she looks good to me, I go home. <laughs> well, that was the only system I, I didn't try. I... These guys on the paper, I, I really envied them. They, that, that was what I wanted to be, what they were, top-notch writers, great newspaper men. And yet, I said to myself, if I ever drink like these guys, I will stop. But the fact remains that I passed them all in the process. That is, those of them that didn't die. I became the Peck's bad boy. A lot of them died. But it didn't relate to me, because, well, a guy, two of them going home one night, they, we had an outfit called the Came the Dawn Club. We used to get through at two, we used to drink till dawn. They missed a curve, they hit a pole, they were dead, they had a wake, everybody felt sorry, and nobody mentioned the booze. Another guy went home one night, he, he lived in an apartment by himself, and he fell against the gas range, and the gas came on, and... The morning, he's dead as a mackerel on the floor, and he had a wake, and everybody felt sorry. And... But it didn't relate to me. I watched them die. As a matter of fact, a little later, I helped a guy die. He was my best friend. He and I drank in a joint called the Red Hat Tavern. Now, the Red Hat Tavern is up on Howard Street of Boston. And since you don't know the locale, uh, uh, Howard Street of Boston... Uh, was very famous to the sailors that came from all over the world uh, to Boston. It's not exactly Skid Row. The Skid Row is another section of town called Dover Street. But Scully Square was kind of the center of deviltry. Uh, the old Howard Ballest Theater was there, and, and, uh, and uh, it was a real action spot. Well, we drank in this Red Hat Tavern, and it was a good place to drink uh, because 75% of the people that drank there didn't have any money and didn't have any home. So that if you worked like I did, you were in the upper brackets. And uh, this would sustain, your, uh, sustain you in your hours of trouble. 
Well, this guy and I drank, and finally he developed cirrhosis of the liver, a very bad case. Well, he was a former secretary to Mayor Curley in Boston, and, of course, I was a newspaper man, and we pulled a few strings. He got him in the city hospital, but the case was so bad that they called doctors from all around to take a look at this guy. And finally, after about six months, they pulled him through, and they were surprised, and everybody was surprised, and on the way out, we were talking to Dr. Maneri, the superintendent, who knew us both, and he said to me now, he said, if Frank drinks again, he said he's signing his death warrant. Oh, I said, don't worry about that, doctor. I said, we watch out for that. And he said to me, by the way, how much do you drink? Well, I wasn't going to tell him the truth, so I said, well, about a half a pint. He said to me, you're next. I said, oh, no, no, not me. So we went out, and we went up the Red Hat, and my friend stayed sober for about two, three weeks. And he said to me, you know, he said, uh, it's kind of boring. He said, uh, he said I, I'd like to have a little beer. Well, I said, a little beer won't hurt you. I said, but in moderation, Frank, in moderation. So he went on the beer. So about a month went by, and he said to me, you know, he said, this beer, it, it kind of fills me up. It gets me right up here, he said. I, I'd like to have a ball now and then. Well, I said, a ball now and then, Frank, is all right. In moderation, in moderation. So he went on the whiskey. Well, about another month went by, and I went away on a vacation. I was only away about two weeks. I got a wire, come home. My friend is dead. Well, I, all I thought about it was, well, wasn't he unlucky? He was a guy in the prime of his life, uh, cut down, and he, he was unfortunate. And it didn't relate to me in any way. I figured, well, maybe he's unlucky, but I thought I was a lucky alcoholic. Now, there were other things that should have clued me in, you know, that something was wrong. Uh, my paper had great confidence in me from time to time. And one night there was a murder up in Maine, and uh, they sent a guy down to bar room, and he got a hold of me, and he said, you've got to go to Maine. And I said, I'm in no shape to go to Maine. He said, well, you're really in the doghouse. You better shape up and get up there. So I went up. And they got a pilot out of a bar room in East Boston to fly the plane. And this guy and I flew to Maine. Well, we were all right to Portland because we had a beam. But from Portland, this is 1 o'clock in the morning. From Portland to Augusta, Maine, we didn't have any beam, and we had to hug the river. And when we got to Augusta, didn't have any lights on the field. Well, we circled around, circled around. We didn't have enough gas to get back to Boston, and the Portland airport was closed. I said to the guy, what are we going to do? He said, well, we got to put it down. Well, they were running automobiles up and down. It looked like a boulevard. They were trying to show us where the runway was. They finally got them off of there. They put some players down. They put them in the wrong place. Well, we missed the runway, and we crashed. There was a guy standing on the embankment. He witnessed it. He called my paper. He told him I'd been killed. Well, the pilot pulled me out of the plane, threw me in an automobile. I got to the hospital. I was bleeding like a stuck pig. I was all cut here, face, and everything else. And the nurse looked at me, and she said, the gentleman looks a little faint. Get him a glass of water. I said, a glass of water? Get me a ball. So somebody produced a jug, and I had a few drinks, and I felt better. And I called the office. So the guy answered the phone was a little bit surprised. He said to me, you all right? I said, of course I'm all right. I said, I'm bleeding like a stuck pig, but I'm all right. He said, that's too bad. He said, I'm halfway through your obituary, he said. <laughs> and I was making you out a hell of a fella. Well, I woke up in the hospital. He operated on me, and the room was filled with flowers. It turned out that the women... The wife of the correspondent up there, they called him and told him to get anything I needed. And she was the head of the local women's Christian temperance union. And she thought flowers would be nice. And I thought I was in an Irish wake when I woke up. I said to the nurse, get these flowers out of here. She said, they're very beautiful. I said, get them out of here. So I lay there, and they came in, and they, they pronounced a sentence on me that I had not fractured my skull, but I had a, a, a close concussion. I might have a delayed concussion, and all I was to do was to have bed rest and uh, no liquor, no nothing. 
And, and I lay there and I thought about this terrible situation of miles from anywhere. And I said, well, I'll call the Western Union. So I got a hold of the manager of the Western Union. And I said, send a boy up here with a quart of booze. And he said, it's against the company rules. I said, the company rules? I said, look, I give you guys a lot of business. He said, ah, but he said, I could bring it up myself. I said, now nah, you're talking. I stayed pleasantly drunk in that hospital for 10 days. And they were wondering how I was doing it, because this guy was a pillar of the church and a big civic leader in the city, and they couldn't figure out how I was getting this liquor. And I must have been an alcoholic then, because normal people never would have thought that good. <laughs> Another time, my paper sent me up to Moose River in Nova Scotia. There were three guys, they were trapped in a mine. They were, uh, they were investigating an old gold mine, because the price of gold had gone up. And the top part of the thing fell in, and they were trapped a mile below earth. And I brought up a little microphone that we were going to slide down a hole that was dug with a diamond drill. And it was quite a, an emotional story. But when I got up there, the thing wouldn't fit in the hole. It was too big. But we weren't going to tell the people about that because it would spoil the story. But I hung around there, and about the second day, I got nothing to drink. And I'm way out in the wilderness. You never saw such a place. There was nothing. There was nothing to eat. There was nothing to drink. Nothing. But they had brought in these men called dragomen. And these guys were fellows that were used in coal mines, but also in gold mines and rescue operations. And they were, they were very good at their work, but they brought them in, and along with them, they shipped barrels of Nova Scotian rum. Well, it was, this was guarded by the Northwest Canadian Mounted Police. Now, fortunately, everybody in Nova Scotia has a relative in Boston, it turns out. And I discovered that the head of the Mounties had a cousin in Somerville, Massachusetts. And I got chatting with him about his cousin in Somerville, and I mentioned the fact that I was a little dry. So he took me over and he said to the guy on the, uh, at this cabin where they had this rum, he said, uh, this fellow's from the States, and any time he needs a little drink, see that he gets it. So I went in, and these dragon men are all there, and they're drinking this stuff in tumblers. And I figure when in Rome, do as the Romans do. So I said, the guy, give me one. So he gave me one, and I took it. And I thought the top of my head come off. I never had such a sensation in all my life. And the guy says, I don't think you know how to drink that, he said. I think you better take it with a little water. So I hung around there for a day, and I was pleasantly drunk. And the second day, one of the guys said to me, why don't you come down to the rescue shaft? They were digging a rescue shaft. These guys had, were trapped in one, and they were digging a rescue shaft parallel to it, which went two miles down and then cut over. And I said, well, it's forbidden. It's a, you know, you're not allowed to do that. Oh, he said, pay no attention to that. He said, hey, Jody, call one of the dragomen over. And he took off his outfit, including the helmet, the mask, and all the rigmarole, and put it on me. Down I went in the rescue shaft. So I got two miles below earth and I sober up. It's too late. It's too late. I can't move. I can't go sideways. I can't go forward. I can't go back. All I could do is keep pushing this rock back that they handed me. I was never so scared in all my life. When I got up, the top of the mine head, I was so happy I was out of there that I just took my helmet off. And the Mounties nearly dropped dead. They said, get out of here. Well, as I say, those things should have been, should have clued me in where something was wrong. I had another clue. It was my marriage. Now, I didn't get married because I was an alcoholic. I don't want you to misunderstand me. Uh, my wife thought it was a good idea, and, uh, and I got married in 1932. And in 1935, she divorced me on the grounds of gross and confirmed habits of intoxication. That's what Massachusetts law says a drunk is. But I didn't pay much attention because I figured she was crazy and I figured the judge was crazy because I figured you can't get that drunk in three years. And anyway, they marry you for better or for worse and why didn't she stand by the sinking ship? So I went right on my merry way. So none of these things made any real impression on me. I suppose it was because I was in the grip of this alcoholism which wouldn't let me think. 
which wouldn't let me think if it meant that I had to stop drinking. Well, I... Uh, another clue should have been where I lived. I, I was making pretty good money. And I lived in the west end of Boston, as a real rough spot. Now, I live in a place which we'll call a rooming house, for want of a better word. And we had alcoholics and narcotics and all kinds of people. Now, we were only two blocks from this old Howard Blessed I'll tell you about, but they only went from one till eleven. We went right around the clock. <laughs> and after I sobered up, I found out that this place was the biggest narcotics drop in the city of Boston. I knew there was a lot of movement at night, but it didn't bother me particularly because I was busy drinking. So, as I say, these things are going on, and everybody's going crazy. I, I could, if you, I could, I could push all this stuff aside. If you didn't know me too well, and you came to me and you said to me, Look, I think you're drinking too much, and somebody tells me you're an alcoholic. I could get a blackboard, and I could prove to you I wasn't. How could I be an alcoholic? I had gone to work in this paper when I was 14 years old. I was still working there. I was still making good money. I had never served a jail term for booze. I had never been hospitalized for booze. I, uh, how could I possibly be an alcoholic under that situation? So if you didn't know me too well... You'd shake your head, you know, and go away. You'd probably say to yourself, well, the poor devil, they are, they're harassing him. Of course, the, the stuff I was feeding the guy was, well, some of it was the truth, and some of it was half-truths, and a little of it was little white lies. But, I mean, I could give him a pretty convincing story. So, if it, didn't, it was the people that knew me that were having all the trouble. My, uh, my sister, for instance, she, she thought I was an elky. And she got the, the, the Jack Alexander article in the Saturday Evening Post that came out in 1941, the first national publication to pay attention to AA. And she brought it home. And she gave it to me because she thought I was a drunk. Then I threw it away. Because rightly or wrongly, my recollection of that article was some sort of an illustration with it. And it showed two guys going in the door of this bar room after two guys who were asleep on the bar. And I figured that these guys were do-gooders. I didn't think the two guys should have been asleep on the bar. I thought they should have been in a booth. But other than that, <laughs> I figured these guys had a little to do. And I threw it away. And early in 1946, my sister went into the central office in Boston at 30 Huntington Avenue. And she got the literature. And she brought it home. And she told me about what wonderful people these were. And I junked it. Because I didn't know, didn't think I was a drunk. I'd go up in the red hat. There'd be a guy on the right of me and a guy on the left of me that had no home and had no money. And I figured that's what they were talking about when they were talking about alcoholics and, 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 and drunks. Well, I was, I was a daily drinker. I wasn't drunk all the time. I was half drunk and three-quarters drunk, and some days I was coasting. I, I was never quite sober. That's the best way to put it. Except one time during the last ten, ten years of my uh, drinking, I had a period of sobriety that I think was three months. I was an active alcoholic at the time, and it could have been only three weeks, but it seemed like three months, whatever it was. But it was a world's record. It was a world's record for me. And my paper sent me out to get a story, which would have interrupted the, the Lindbergh case, would have halted the execution of Hoffman. It wouldn't have prevented it in the end, but it was a good story, and it would have halted the thing at the time. And I got a hold of this guy, and we went to see his lawyer. The guy wanted three or $4,000. And I didn't want to give him that kind of money. Didn't have to give him anyway, but I, we talked about it, and we couldn't find the lawyer. And on the way back, I said to him, uh, would you like to have a drink? And he said, yes. 
So we went in, and I had a drink, and he had a drink, and I had a drink, and he had a drink. I drank him right under the table, and I got the story for nothing. But when I got back to the office, I was so drunk they wouldn't believe me. And they put me down in a hotel to sober up. And the next day they ran the story. Well, after that, I really didn't make any great effort to stay sober. Because I figured, here, I established this world's record of sobriety, and my paper had gone and gotten me drunk. So after that, I just went my merry way. Well, as I say, I was a daily drinker, and I was on a drunk. I use that word advisedly. I'd go along, and then I'd go up, and then I'd come down, I'd go along, and then I'd go up. Well, this was a nut thing in the chart. I was with four or five of my buddies. And I woke up in a flea bag hotel in Scully Square in Everett, in Boston. Now, this didn't bother me particularly because I woke up in a many strange places under many strange circumstances. But the room was covered with blood. I had busted a blood vessel. I didn't know that. And these clowns, they give me some stale beer. And they nearly kill me. They nearly polish me off. I lay there and I, I couldn't drink water. I couldn't drink milk. I couldn't drink whiskey with bitters. I couldn't drink nothing. I just lay there in my bed of pain. Through my mind floated Alcoholics Anonymous because I had heard of it. I figured this was a desperate situation. Well, it was more desperate than I knew. I had been suspended in absentia. They couldn't find me to suspend me, and they had suspended me by letter. I said to myself, well, what about Alcoholics Anonymous? Because I knew there was such a thing, but I didn't know what it was. I figured, I knew they stopped you from drinking, so I figured they're reformers, and I didn't like reformers, because one time I had a boss, and he was a reformed drunk. It was one of the worst periods of my existence, so I didn't want anything to do with reformers, and I figured they were nutty, not people that hit you overhead with a gnats, but a lunatic fringe, and I figured my paper found out I was connected with them. They figure I'd gone completely off my rocker, and I'd never get back to work. And I figured they were a religious thing, too. Some sort of a mission thing. Some come to Jesus movement. I wanted to be saved, but I figured there was no panic about it. You know, take, take your time. Take your time. What's the hurry? So all these things are rolling through my mind. And I said to myself, but you're a smart guy. Why don't you go to three meetings and find out what these people do and apply it to your life and resume your drinking? You have so much trouble. And that's how I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. A terrible way to come, perhaps. Except that no way is bad. Because the important thing is what happens to you after you get here. Now, if when I got here, the skies had opened up or I'd been struck with lightning, it would be a terrific phase in my recovery. But such was not the case. The first meeting I was at, a guy got up, and he'd been 17 times in the Bridgewater State Hospital, and he'd been 19 times here, and he'd been 18 times there, and I'd never been out of Scully Square. <coughs> And I said to myself, well, that poor devil, he probably needs it. <laughs> and a guy got up and he told corny stories like some chairman do. And uh, people laughed. And I said to myself, well, if the guy wants to make an ass out of himself, that's his own business. The third meeting, I was on my way out. And standing in back was a guy who had gone to school with me and another guy. So the guy who knew me said, the guy said, gee, I know that guy. So Arthur Desmond, God rest his soul, said, why don't you speak to him? Now, I had promised myself that I wasn't going to speak to anybody because I wasn't going to be around very long, and I didn't want anybody riding herd on me. But as I went by, the guy said, hi. And I said, hi. I said, look, I'm not an alcoholic. I said, I got a little trouble in the office, and they're on my back, and I'm working my way out of it. He said, would you like to go to a meeting with me? I said, yeah, and I left. Well, 
He called my house. He beat me to the punch. The next day, I'm telling him how I can't meet him, and my sister tapped me on the shoulder, and she said, I'll drive you. So I was hooked. Well, there was an eager Bieber AA, and he lived in a big housing project in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, 250, 300 pounds. And he was going to dry up the world. And he went around, and he told all the women there they were holding this temperance rally that night. And to bring anybody they thought were alcoholic, and they all brought their husbands. <coughs> now we had a big crowd. And they put me up in front in a chair like Exhibit A. I've never seen it before, I've never seen it since, and I hope I never see it again. And when it was over, my friend said to me, what do you think? I said, look, I told you. I said, I'm, I'm not an alcoholic. I said, I got a lot of trouble in the office. And they're on my back, and I'm working my way out of it. He said, look, let me tell you something. He said, I don't know whether you're an alcoholic or not. He said, nobody around here is going to tell you. But he said, let me tell you this much. He said, you wouldn't be fooling around here unless you've got some kind of trouble with drinking. He said, now, if you've got some kind of trouble with drinking, you could be an alcoholic. And he said, if you are an alcoholic, there's nothing in front of you but death, insanity, and trouble. So he said, why don't you get sober and stay sober and go to six or eight meetings and find out whether or not you're alcoholic. He said, if you're not an alcoholic, you go your way, we go ours, there's no harm done. He said, if you think you are an alcoholic then, he said, you've got another choice. You can come with us. Oh, you can go without us. He said, we won't put any rope around your neck. He said, we'll grow with you without you. Don't worry about us. He said, but the important thing is you and your decision. And he said, as long as... He said, what are you doing? You're under suspension. You're not working. It's not going to cost you anything. Why don't you get sober and stay sober and go to six or eight meetings? So I walked out of the joint. I only got a buck in my pocket. I'm out of my territory. Even then I knew one drink or two drinks were no good for me. So I kept saying, I hadn't drank that day because I was afraid of this razzmatazz that night. And I said to myself, well, this clown says you stay sober one day at a time. And I said, I didn't drink today. I'll go home. So I went home. I got up the next morning and I twisted my arm and I stayed sober. And I was awful sick. I was awful sick. I thought I was going to die. I had... Rump cramps in my legs, I had cold sweats, I had hot sweats. And I wonder why I was torturing myself. A lot of people I didn't know, never heard of before, and probably would never see again. The whole thing seemed ridiculous. And I'd come to the meetings, and they'd be there, and they'd be laughing and talking and jumping with joy. And I'd say to myself, I'm the guinea pig. These people are drinking on the side. <laughs> And they're keeping me sober. Because <laughs> I couldn't figure out how you could be happy and not drink. I figured if you didn't drink, uh, there were no bright lights, there were no music, there were no teams, there were nothing. You might as well stay home and count your toes. And I, I didn't want to live like that. I, I, I figured, I had that old prohibition idea, Bobby, you know, that the, the guy in the long black hat, the long black coat, the black pants, and the soft puss. See, that to me was a prohibition. That was the type of person that didn't drink. And I didn't want any truck with them. So as I say, I watched these people with great suspicion. More than suspicion, I guess, with, uh, with disbelief, you might say. Well, anyway, I went to 18 meetings in three weeks. At the end of that time, I knew one thing and one thing only. I knew I was the type of person that couldn't drink in safety. I knew I was the type of person that when I drank, it spelled trouble with cops, with money, society, this, that, and the other thing. And I was willing to admit that part of my trouble was due to the booze. I, I knew, as I say, that I was the person that couldn't drink in safety. I knew there were other people that could. My, my brother's one of them. I mean, he's the type of person, he takes one drink or two drinks and he wants no more. Disgusting type of drinker, but I mean, that's 
what he is. I was an all-or-nothing guy. Once I started, I, I had to finish the job. So I knew I was an alcoholic. Well, what was I going to do about it? Well, I didn't really know because uh, I had watched these people with, with, with suspicion. And they were, I see these guys there night after night, you know. And some of them, they said they were sober three months. Some were sober six months. Some were sober nine months. Some said they were sober a year. I didn't really believe them, but I figured I'd go along with the gang. So I said to myself, well, maybe this is how you do it. And I went to 90 meetings in three months. At the end of that time, I knew two things. I knew I was an alcoholic. I knew I couldn't drink in safety. I knew that there was an answer, that there was the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, that I could stay away from one drink one day at a time. I, I began to assimilate these things. Well, at the end of the three months, I was back working, and, and uh, my paper sent me over to New York to cover a murder story. Well, anyway, it wasn't a murder. It was a manslaughter, and the people don't knock down newsboys for papers about that. And my office said to me, come home. So I walked up in the Times Square, and I, I got two, three hundred dollars, and the girls are singing, and the bells are ringing, and I said, well, well, well. Nobody in New York knows me, and I don't know anybody in New York. And I'm like a kid looking in a candy store, you know. I figure, well, if you go in, you, you got to have a drink, you got to have the price of admission. But as I was standing there looking in the windows at these hot spots, I said to myself, well, look, you've been around AA for three months, and you ain't seen anybody go back to social drinking. And God knows you've seen an awful lot try. And what makes you think you're any different than anybody else? So I said a prayer to God to help me. Then I helped myself. I grabbed a cab. I caught a train. I walked in the office next morning. They nearly dropped dead. They figured I was gone. A lot of money changed hands and bets and whatnot. <laughs> you know, the first three months, the first three months I was sober, they figured I was afraid to drink. And the next three months I was sober, they said, look, when this guy goes, it's going to be a cocker and batten down the hatches. And the next three months I was sober, they didn't know what to do. They buzz, 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 buzz. Finally, one guy went in. He said to the managing editor, you know what happened? He said, what happened? He said, Monaghan's an Alcoholics Anonymous. The guy says, I don't care. He's a Buddhist. Leave him alone. Oh. Well, I was walking down the street one day shortly after that. I used to keep wondering about things I heard at meetings. And everybody was talking about the spiritual experience they had. And I didn't seem to have any spiritual experience. And it seemed to be lacking in my career. And I was wondering about it. And I said to myself, you know, it's a funny thing. I'll bet you this is what it is, that I can walk down the street and I can face people and meet them eye to eye. And I no longer have to duck. I no longer have to dodge. I no have to evade them. I said to myself, well, that's my spiritual experience. And that's the way I, I, I've held on to it. Well, I worked hard at AA after that. I, I had a lot of fun and I had a lot of trouble because... Uh, you know, I'm a cross between a freewheeling Irishman and a conservative Yankee, and that's a kind of a tough breed. One of us became president of the United States, but other than that, we 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 get you, you get kind of you get kind of mixed up uh, when you're operating. And I listened to a lot of things they told me, and uh, uh, I try to follow it out to the best of my ability. I I had some. I did a lot of 12-step work. I, it always intrigued me. Uh, some of it was good, some of it was bad, but it all helped me. I, I remember uh, one night I, I was out in Medford. I was only in a, a, well, I don't know, maybe six months. And I didn't look too sober. 
And sometimes now, uh, after a hard night playing cards and things, I don't look too sober either. But this guy was there, and he had a few belts in him. And I looked like a kindred soul, and he said to me, what do you think of this outfit? And I said, I think they're a pretty good crowd. He said, how long have you been in? I said, I've been in about six, seven months. He said, well, he said, you know, he said, I, I'm in an awful lot of trouble. I said, well, I was in an awful lot of trouble too, chum. He said, well, I got no money. Well, I said, I didn't have any money came, when I came in. I said, I owed a lot of money, a lot of debts. I said, well, I'm working my way out of it. I said, they're not all paid by shaking along. He said, well, he said, I got no job. Well, I said, I didn't have any job either. I said, I was under indefinite suspension. I said, I didn't get back to work for six weeks. He said, well, he said, uh, my wife left me. I said, well, my wife left me. Well, he said, I had two kids. She took them. I said, well, I had two kids, and she took them. And he said, well, my wife divorced me. I said, well, my wife divorced me. Well, he said, I've been listening to these guys. He said what happens to them and everything else. He said, uh, did you get your wife back? Well, hey, Tommy, to be honest. So I said, well, no, I didn't. Well, he said, I think I'll join. I don't want mine back either. (laughs) It taught me, it taught me to be very careful what you can say to a new man, because you can never tell what he's thinking. (laughs) I was very active in the central office, so I talked to a lot of drunks. I like to talk to them. One night I went to Needham. There was a guy there, and he came up to me, and he said, I'm certainly glad to see you. He said, you're the first person I ever talked to in Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, yeah, it could be. I said, I don't seem to remember you. Well, he said, you remember about three years ago, he said, I came in the office. I'm a jewelry salesman for such a time. I said, oh, yeah, I remember you. I remember you. And he says, yeah. I said, well, gee, I said, you know, I said, I said, a thing like this makes you feel good, I said. Yeah, I said, three years. Three years you've been sober. He said, oh, no, no. He said, tonight is my first meeting. I didn't believe what you told me. So, as I say, these things used to happen as I went along, and and, and I enjoyed them. And I, uh, I can't tell you the path to sobriety for anybody. I don't think there really is any, any road map. Uh, I think it's... Uh, a matter of playing a thing by year. Uh, as far as the steps go, I figured it out this way, as far as I was concerned, that I would admit that I was an alcoholic, that I would admit it without reservation, that I would try to establish a better contract with God. I would try to do what to clear away the wreckage of the past. Well, here again, I found out that most of that wreckage uh, you couldn't do a great deal about, that the really people who mattered were delighted and loved you because you had gotten sober. And I figured as far as dealing with the rest of the, girl go, uh, rest of the world goes, it's just a matter of giving the other guy a, a fair shake of the dice. Give him a fair shake of the dice. You do the best you can. I remember we discussed in the honesty part of the program one time, and a guy got up and he said he couldn't be 100% honest. He said he was a used car salesman. The best he could do he was 75%. So... <laughs> We told him to hang on to that, and he'd be all right, and he came out all right. Well, for the record, I better tell you that I came to Alcoholics Anonymous in October 1946. And I don't, I merely state that because people ask, and I don't brag about it because, uh, number one, I didn't think I'd be sober 22 days, and nobody else thought I'd be sober 22 days, including the guys in AA who said I was one of the most arrogant people I ever saw walk into the place. But I, I worked hard at AA, and I stayed close to AA people, and I tried to stay close to AA principles. I made every effort I could not to distort them. At the risk of being drummed out of the fellowship by Bob and the trustees, I'm a fundamentalist as far as AA goes. I, I, I believe in, in the old, simple things. There's a spiritual or something about the old-time religion. The old-time religion is good enough for me. Well, that's the way I feel about AA. I feel that the principles that were in effect in 1946 when I came in are just as good now as they were today. 
I agree that many frills and other things have been added to Alcoholics Anonymous, and maybe it's all right, and it's all right with me. But I feel that in getting the drunk sober, in helping the, in helping the drunk, that those fundamental principles of our operation then are just as effective now. I, uh, when I was in AA, they, they sent me around uh, in New England there, uh, with a lot of hot shots. You know, we, we got, uh, we, well, I better not start bragging in Georgia, but we got some pretty good medical schools up there and, and hospitals. And they got a lot of guys that are experts on alcoholism in their field, psychiatry and everything. And I used to go around to these conferences and, and sort of represent AA at some of them. And I listened to these doctors and psychiatrists and, and clergymen, and uh, they'd have their, their charts and their maps and their schemes. And I, I have nothing against them, uh, because I, I think they all try to do wonderful work. But the only trouble is, of course, the alcoholic misleads them. I mean, he don't tell them the truth. So nobody gets off at a very good start. The doctor's out in left field, the psychiatrist's out in left field, and the clergyman's out in left field. Because the drunk figures, well, if this guy is going to find out what's wrong with me, that's his business. I ain't going to tell him. <laughs> so I used to listen to these guys. And I used to, being a newspaper man, I used to read with great interest everything that was printed on alcoholism. At the end of it all, all I could figure out was this. That they haven't got anything. They haven't got anything to offer, really. AA has got the easiest, the safest, the least costly way there is in God's green earth to stay sober. I believe that there are two great powers at work. I believe that there's the power of group therapy, such as you see here and all over the world, night after night. And I believe that there's the power of God, as you know them, or as you come to understand them. And if you let those two powers work for you, and you do a little work for yourself, no harm can come to you. Thank you very much. If right after the Lord's Prayer, we will all clear out of here, we will clear the tables for the dance. I'm going to ask uh, Reverend Wetzel to lead us in the Lord's Prayer. Will you stand, please? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. <clears throat> 